Welcome to the Meeting Explorers podcast. This is Frederick Strang. First, some housekeeping. If you like this content, there are many ways you can support it. You can share it on social media, spread the word, and invite friends to listen to it. Your help is being appreciated. In this episode, I'm delighted to talk to Tamara Lugner, Italian ski mountaineer and alpinist who have ventured to the high Himalayas with objective in scaling 8,000 meter peaks in winter. I first met Tamara on Cho'oyo in 2010, and I was already then impressed by her indomitable physical strength, but also her contagious smile and positive outlook on life. Born in Bolzano in 1986, daughter of well-known Italian ski mountaineer Hans-Jörg Lugner, Tamara has lived all her life among the mountains, and she says, each moment I spend in the mountains helps me to be increasingly aware of who I am as well as being more grateful towards life. In 2002, she started ski mountaineering and since then won titles such as Italian Champion in 2006 and 2008, and the title of World Champion on the Long Distance in 2008. After this period of ski mountaineering racing, she dreamed of climbing an 8,000 meter peak, and in 2009, during her first mountaineer experience in Nepal, she confirmed to herself that this was the right idea. From then on, things were clear for Tamara, quote, This is the life I want, nothing else. On 23rd May 2010, she became the youngest female climber to reach the main summit of Lotse, only aged 23, 11 months and 17 days. In 2014, she reached the summit of K2 without supplemental oxygen and in 2015, Tamara tried to climb Manaslu together with Simone Moro, but abandoned the climb due to heavy snow and fell short merely 70 meters below the summit. Last winter, she went back to K2 for a winter ascent. Despite the lofty achievements by 10 strong Nepali climbers that finally stood on K2 in winter, the season turned out to become a sad reminder of the mountain's ruthlessness and sacrifice as five people tragically lost their lives. I'm eager to talk to Tamar about choices in life, how to push the extremes, risk, and from where the love from jagged peaks derive from. With Tamar's own words, I'm a dreamer in love with the mountains. So without further ado, I bring you Tamara Lu. Welcome Tamara. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while. It's great having yeah. you aboard. You know what? Mm-hmm. Before we jump into your daring expeditions, your climbs of 8,000 meters in the winter in constellations predominantly by men, pushing your comfort zone and handling grief and losses in the mountains, how would you describe yourself as a person? Wow. <laughs> It's really hard and difficult to describe myself because I think I went through a lot of changings over the last year and I'm constantly changing. It's sometimes really quick also because I work a lot on myself, like mindset. And that's why I'm I'm really religious. I'm very spiritual. I'm... Pre, in the previous years, I, I really killed myself doing sports. And now I got 
to the point where I really understood, okay, now maybe it's the time to calm down a bit. And so now I have some back issues and I really do just physiotherapy and, and a little bit of walking like the, the old people, but not much more. And, but I, I can say I'm still a happy person because um, I know that everything which happened is for something. And that's why uh, I see it somehow as a sign. And I, I just go on with my mindset work and I'm a happy person. And lovely to hear. I know the feeling of feeling crippled and old. My back is aching of pain constantly. It's, it's, a, it's an adventure just, you know, crawling out of bed in the morning. But I think that's yeah. due to a life full of adventures. It's a price we have to pay. You know, you call yourself a dreamer. And I checked on the internet. There are thousands of songs dedicated to the title Dream. And one that I come to think of is John Lennon's Dream. Then there are quotes like one from Hugo Pratt, quote, he's dreaming with his eyes open and those that dream with their eyes open are dangerous for they do not know when their dream come to an end. What I'd like to know here, are some dreams too dangerous to think or to dream of, do you think? Hmm. So... <laughs> If you, if you want to hear me speaking about K2, then I think it was not too dangerous because I was so 100%, really, it, I was 100% sure that I can go to the top. And I did so much mental work, nearly more mental than, than physical. And I was so in love with this idea. I was so... Uh, powerful and energetic and I was so looking forward to it but then everything started to change slowly slowly into the the opposite and then I was asking myself what's going on here uh, why I need to be here now in this situation if before I was set like so positive and yeah but I accepted it like it was and I just tried to keep high my energy my positive energy and phew, it was really hard. And, uh, but in this moment, maybe I was also under shock because we had these losses. I was a little bit disappointed. I was asking a lot of questions to the go goddess of the mountain. For me, she is a she. <laughs> so I was all the time asking her, what's going on here? What do you want from us? You know, what should I do? And yeah, there are a lot of very interesting episodes. I, I was living there in the base camp, but right now it's more than a year already in the past. And now a lot of new, um, new thoughts are coming up and uh, a lot of new conclusions and so on. So it's really, really interesting because, for example, now if I go to the mountains, I feel no more the same. I'm afraid more. I see more the death in everything. And uh, it's, it's hard at the moment. Also because for me, the mountain was everything uh, in the past years. And now it's really, it changed a lot. And for me, was very disappointing 
or I was also sad for this because I thought, okay, this was my decision. I gave everything from my side to this. And now it's kind of not, I, I don't want to say over, but it changed and maybe it comes back, but I'm not really sure that, and I'm sure that I'm not coming back like I was before. I think I will come back in a different way. And so this is also interesting, but um, it was of course a big tragedy, a big sadness and yeah, very, very bad. It was the, the worst experience in my life. I suffered a lot when I came home. I cried for months, um, but now I worked so much on myself that I can already say, okay, it was sad, but I can also be glad and grateful that I met these people and I still remember them now with a smile on my face. So this is really something where I'm grateful of. I'm very happy to hear that. Some yeah. reflections that pops up in my mind is, is handling grief and it's a process. Um, it's as for me, I can only speak for myself. It mountains has been like a marriage and um, I ended my professional eight thousand meter career uh, with um, not scaling K2 and I went away terribly sick and it felt like I pushed myself for so many years and it ended in a failure and living with a failure and living with grief of so many of my fellow comrades losing their lives in the mountains is um, um, I'm asking myself, was it worth it? And I think that is very, it's a tremendous um, load to carry on its, on, on its shoulder. And it's a process, I guess, uh, and it have to take time. I'd like to come back to K2 a little bit further on, but right now I'd like to pivot and rewind the clock when you were 14 years old and, and you were starting dreaming of 8,000 8, meter peaks. And I can relate to this occasion because I was seven years of age and I sat down in school looking through the atlas, playing around with the contours and unbeknownst to me, Mount Everest popped up with staggering 8848 8, meters. And I, could, I couldn't find any competitor of its height. And I was immediately hooked. And I remember me clearly dreaming of Everest. Uh, it, it was this revelation. Where did your spark for 8,000 meter peaks come from? Hmm. Uh, since I was a child, I always tried to reach my goal in a in a hard way. I was never happy with an easy way. And this was really strange because my mother told me about some silly things, but I constantly tried to, to have it hard in my life. And uh, also when I went to school, I always said, okay, I want to have just the best, um, how to say? Grades. Uh, yeah. I just want to have the best grades and I, I was studying and studying and studying and I always asked a lot from myself. And when I uh, went into athletics, for me, uh, before I, I started running, then I had the knee issues, then I was kind of, oh, what should I do? And the doctor said, no, it's better you, you choose something else. 
Then I came to discus. I didn't and, know that. <laughs> yeah, I came there, but I was also quite good. But at the same time, I thought, oh my God, this is not, not the satisfaction. This is just, I don't want to end up like 100 kilo. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, this was, I, I was not able to imagine myself in this sport in the future. So um, I read this article about uh, an Italian woman, Manuela Di Centa, who climbed Everest. At that time, I was, I was going to the national championship uh, of athletics and I wrote this article and I said, okay, one day I will go to 8,000 meter peaks. And I don't know why, but um, for me, this was the hardest thing you can do in the mountains. For, this was my imagination. So even uh, ski mountain, uh, mountaineering races, which I did after my athletics career, um, I loved it because it was so hard. For example, I was not able to ski and I went with my father, my first ski tour uh, on the top of a mountain here next to, to my home, just 600 meters up. And I, I never skied, I never did ski mountaineering. He gave me skis of 192. And I just went up and I, I didn't want to go in his trace because I want to have it hard. And that's why I did my own track. So I went up, I was super happy and I said, wow, this is my sport. But then skiing down, I was not able how to, I didn't know how to ski. So my father said, yeah, you just need to jump in, in the turns, so easy. And I said, yeah, yeah, okay, I tried, but I was just falling and falling, falling. But at the end of this day, I said, wow, this is really what I want to be, what I want to do. And so I did races uh, in already the next year. I did my first race just uphill because I was not able to go down. And I won this race. I was, I think, 15 years old. And then I said, wow, this is my future. And then I trained and I went into national team. I was there together with my father. But something was missing for me. Um, I, di I didn't feel really that I have the possibility to leave the mountains because, you know, you have, you, you need to train in a certain way. Maybe the day before the, the race, you should stay a little bit calm. And even, even though if there is this beautiful weather, you should stay a little bit uh, low, <laughs> low intensity. And so just a few, few meters. And then I said, yeah, I, I travel all around the Alps and then I do the races, but I just hear the bam and then I just need to run. And I never have really the opportunity to see these mountains, to feel these mountains. And so I said, no, I miss something really important for me. And this is to connect with the mountains. And then I, I met Simone, he told me, I met him when I was 19 and he told me he, he will bring me to the Himalayas. And four years after I searched out for him on Facebook, this was like kind of new, new that time. And then he wrote to me, yeah, Tamara, I can bring you this year. And I was going crazy in here in our home. I was just screaming, I was shaking. And uh, my mother said, you're completely crazy. But then I, I was so happy and still it's one of the most beautiful days in my life because uh, this 
reaction of my body already told me that this is my thing. And my first expedition there was just like, I'm in heaven. I loved every step. I loved even my headache. And I, <laughs> it was just like, oh, this is my, my life. Yeah. I love that story. I love it. <laughs> it you're describing it. It feels like I'm with you all the way along, uphill <laughs> and downhill. <laughs> yeah. Life. There's, there's an expression from a Swedish poet. He says that uh, his, his name is August Strindberg. He said that um, uh, life is not for amateurs. And I guess that through hardship comes, um, I think, um, some kind of um, gratitude, if I would to pick that word. You start mm -hmm. to appreciate life. Uh, if you only ask for um, um, the candy, uh, I don't think you will appreciate it as much as if you have experienced thirst, hunger, suffering, and pain, because then the candy tastes so much better. You know, you were born in um, the mountainous areas, and, and you always lived close to the mountains, being surrounded by them. Uh, and, and I'd like to know, firstly, what is it if you could pin down the magnetic pull that possesses you so much? But secondly, if you think about John Moore's expression and saying, he said that the mountains are calling and I must go. Why do you think that is about mountains that sets this magical spell on us? What is it about mountains that makes us so transfixed? and so appealing about mountains. Is it a dream about something? Is it something that is in our DNA to strive for summits and strive for the next hill, looking for new grass, looking for new territories, looking for new food? Does it come from the cavemen that we strive from the um, bottoms to the top? What do you think? Hmm, I think, uh, in my life, it was maybe first of all, because I wanted to show to my father that I'm capable of. This was maybe one big uh, factor. Then it was that we had a, a refuge. When I was 12, 13, we, we went to this refuge. We had it for 20 years. And at the first years, I was constantly looking to the, to the view or to the mountains, you know, to the Dolomites, because it's at the opposite side of the Dolomites. Every day they, they appeared in a different look, in a different way, in a different mood. And for me, this was so fascinating that I often told to my mother, ah, oh, today I would love to be in the mountains. And she said, yeah, but you are in the mountains, but yeah, but to work. So the, the first years, I, I trained there a lot. I went to, to the mountains around. I went running. And yeah, always with this focus on 8,000 meter. And it's, yeah, I kind of fell in love. But I really, maybe it's also because of my way to live life, always on the, on the hard way. Uh, this maybe the mountains are hard. Um, you know, in the ski mountaineering races, uh, you knew you gave everything when you felt the blood in your throat. And this kind of thing, I just want to somehow kill myself to be 
satisfied in the evening and to lay down in my bed completely destroyed. This was always my goal. As, uh, like this, I felt alive. Like this, I felt the person who I wanted to be. But now I need to say I, I have to pay a, a high price because now I got the bill. <laughs> or I got the bill already since I'm 13 years old. I had always this pain in my knees. But I have to say, every time when I went on expedition, this pain somehow disappeared a bit. I was so much in my, uh, my loved environment that there was something else, else stronger than my pain. Huh. Well, you have so to pay your dues, that's for sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, it's hard. It's hard on the body. And it's hard on our minds and our conscious to be climbing these mountains. But it also, it's so gratifying and it, it, it also gives us such much peace and enjoyment. Uh, I think we first met on Chuoyo, the world's sixth highest mountain in the world, yeah. stands 8,188 meter above sea level. What struck me then is that you always seem to look on the bright side of life. Were you, were you born with this gift or is it something that you have developed over the years? No, you know, you have to imagine this was my uh, second or my third expedition. Let's say the first one we wanted to go to Choyu and they closed the border in 2009. So we just went to Island Peak. Then uh, the, the next year I went to Lotse. This was my first 8000er. And then I was so in love with all this that I wanted to go to another uh, 8000er. And for me, that didn't matter with whom and whatever. I just wanted to go. And so I, I joined uh, like an international group, but I was alone. And uh, this is already showing me how, how much or which value this had for me, you know, this was everything for me. So I didn't care about anything. This is my, my wish, my goal, my dream, and I just go. And then of course, every step is just beautiful, even if you suffer, even if you are cold, but, oh, you know, it's, it, for me, the mountains really for uh, a long period of time was, like a relation with the man so i the the mountain never i or i always trusted the mountain i uh, sometimes he was angry or she sometimes um you know there was kind of a connection sometimes positive sometimes negative and i just learned a lot in all this year in all these years yeah can you speak with the mountains do you have an actual conversation or, 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 or can you, is it more of a feeling, a connection with, with, with emotions that you interpret? For example, when I stand, uh, I was always afraid of K2 because I saw K2 the first time in 2013, no, 12, when I went to Broad Peak, when we met the second time. And um, what I, there... I was just standing on Concordia and I watched to K2 and I thought, oh my God, this is such a huge mountain. I think this is uh, 
a little bit too much for me. I don't know, but it makes me more afraid than good feeling, you know? And so, okay, I, I forgot about this K2. And then uh, in 2014, I quit me with my boyfriend and I was so, I was so destroyed. And one guy of here of Italy, he asked me if I would like to go to K2. And I said, yeah, now I don't care about anything. I just go there. Even if I die, who cares? Really, I was so destroyed. And then I went there and second time on Concordia, I watched this huge creature and I felt like butterflies in my stomach. I, it was like with a man and I knew in this moment that I will go to the top. And this was so, even though if I had like a lot of problems, I had um, inflammation in my tendon, Achilles tendon, then I had, I was always swollen. I, I had some allergic reaction. I don't know, maybe for the sun. Then I had allergic, allergic reactions in my hands and in, in my feet with small blisters full of liquid. And they were just, uh, I always needed to, to scratch a lot. They were itching so much. So a lot of problems, but I was like a child in this base camp who was waiting Christmas, you know? Oh, two more nights to sleep and then I can go to the words, the top. And this, you know, even if I look at my uh, videos on the top, I, I feel like there was not that, uh, heaviness there was not that suffering I've just felt I'm speaking normally and I was so overwhelmed about this beauty and about that I was so lucky to be here for the first time and already was able to go to the top and so this mountain for me it's still the most important mountain in my life because she gave me, it's a she for me, she gave me so much and she teach me so much. And you know, when I go up, I speak normally with God, but last time on K2, uh, for me, it was also conversation with this goddess. One time, and it was really crazy. I had, um, I had kind of, uh, how you say, uh, I'm not an imagination. Um, when you're starting to get sick, go, how? Premonition that you saw what was going to happen in the future? No, no, I had, I was kind, I was not sick, but I had Hallucinating, some, hallucinating? Yeah, yeah. I was in the base camp and this was already after our second um, round on the mountain. So I was there and... Um, one guy in the base camp had birthday. So we um, organized his birthday party and, you know, we had this double isolated tent and then it was, there were a lot of people and we had this Christmas light, you know, blue, green, red, yellow, blah, 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 like this, then music. And so for me, maybe it was too much. I thought it's lack of oxygen. I had a little bit of headache and I went out to do some breath work and then I said okay I go in again I went in for 10 more minutes and I really felt ah I feel not good headache my heartbeat is is 
going up and I don't know what's happening happening or what's going on. So I went out again. I wanted to go to sleep. I laid down in the tent and I was just like, my heartbeat was very high and I was laying down. I closed my eyes and I, I saw like the K2 mountain and the goddess of K2 above the top with the dress. She had a white dress and this dress was going down to can two, can three. And she was so beautiful, you know, these curly hairs and a, a, a face in peace and in complete harmony. And she gave me so much power. And then I was walking under her dress, uh, protected from wind, from cold, from everything. But the strange thing, I was always alone. And this was so beautiful for me. I, I felt such a big connection to the world and to this mountain I cannot even describe and um, you know I also I didn't drink alcohol or nothing but it's this was so strange and beautiful at the same time uh, that I just knew okay I'm protected on this mountain wow yeah strikes me because I had a similar experience when I was on K2 in 2017 I actually had a real conversation with K2 and I could hear the voice I was not in a strobe discotheque in a double insulated tent as you were uh, with party party I, I was just contemplating in my tent and uh, it felt warm around my heart and I started to have this response with K2 and and she said it's hard to put a gender on the mountain I had but I think it was a she back then and and she said that uh, it's okay Fred you can climb you can climb to the summit if you want and I I took it as an invitation and it was presumably it was it was quite with ease it wasn't strenuous it wasn't hard in any way but the conditions were not right i i i gauged that the avalanche risks was not in favor etc so i abandoned my summit attempt but the fact that you can have a conversation and connect with mother nature i think is something spiritually uh, very evocative but I also think that it is profound in another sense that perhaps humanity is losing their touch and sense and connection with nature overall. And I think it's important that we and you address this to the general public that we can connect with nature and we should because when we get separated and secluded from nature, we start to overexploit or we start to ravage the last wilderness we need to protect mother nature and protect wilderness. So that's my takeaway from the conversations that I have, that I feel that I'm more responsible and I have this duty to pay the respect and be responsible for nature and not only see it as something that should be vanquished and climbed and overcome and yeah. conquered. Yeah. Uh, the imperialistic uh, sort of aspect of it, but more the laid back the more uh, sneaking up being humble 
and paying the respect to the mountain gods and, and sneaking down and then tell the story of this beautiful relationship. That's, that's, my, um, 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 that's my interpretation of a conversation. Very long yeah. monologue here. <laughs> Pardon me for that. But uh, yeah, thank you for sharing your insights, Paul. Uh, it's very beautiful. I, I can completely understand uh, you having this experience. Uh, pivoting now to another kind of, of, of thought. I mean, you've been speaking a little bit about uh, how you push yourself to the extremes. I know superb fitness is, is mandatory for climbing mountains and big mountains, but, but what other components do you think it's, is, is, is useful for a strong and, and a safe 8,000 meter climber? What abilities and, and competence is, is useful? I think it's a lot intuition because um, of course there is, there are the facts, maybe it's danger of avalanche or danger of stone falling or whatever. But then you always need to listen um, to your inner voice, what's going on with me in this context. So uh, yeah, it's so beautiful because, you know, I, this is going to be a long story now, <laughs> when I was- I have time. <laughs> when I was with Simone Moro on Gasherbrum in now two years back, I was completely, you know, I was thinking all the time with this, I want to, to conquer. I want to go. I need to be on the top and this kind of things. And then we, are, we worked a lot from the 1st of January to the 18th. So every day up and down, up and down, the glacier was really complicated. No, um, sometimes we just did 150 meters, but not of elevation, just of meters, because it was, okay, we try to go there, no way back. Okay, let's try to go there, no way back. And so we, we did 18 days for making 500 meters of elevation. And this was kind of frustrating. So we called Karl Gabel, our uh, weather god, and he said, yeah, now the next days is again quite good. If you go up also to camp two, it should be fine for the winds and so on. And I said to Simone, now we really, we need to push hard. We need to go up to camp two at least. And, you know, like I thought like a man somehow, I, I wanted to just to do it with some kind of, nearly aggressive behavior. And Simone, he thought, oh, I don't know. And I said, what do you know? You don't know. So we have good weather, we just should go. And he said, yeah, we will see tomorrow. In the morning, it was beautiful weather and he watched around and said, yeah, yeah, of course, uh, okay, let's go. So we went up and this 18th of January, we had this accident where I went, I passed some crevices. We, we knew here are some crevices. I passed, I went a little bit uphill and I stopped there to belay Simone. So I uh, wanted to do the, I wanted to belay him. I opened the knot with my thumb and 
so I wanted to clip in and exactly in this moment, he did his first step and he didn't follow exactly my track, but he went two meters more to the left. I wanted to clip and he just did the first step and fell down. So I was flying like Superman, you know, <laughs> in, in the air. And then I just fell down to the floor and I was um, sliding. I was, yeah, I was sliding on, on the snow and I was just uh, praying, please, God, stop me, stop me, stop me. I had no, no other possibility. So I wanted to make myself heavy, you know, double as heavy as I am. Like <laughs> the discus. Like the discus woman. <laughs> yeah. Hundred kilo I, at least. And I stopped really with my hand at the edge of the crevice. Oh my holy shit. I was kind of shocked, but I knew also exactly what I needed to do. So I tried to go in conversation with Simone. He was 20 meters down. So I was just screaming and I I tried quickly to do a dead body to fix everything. But of course I needed to be so quick that of course he, the, the ice axe was not down enough. And so I said, oh my God, now I have just two options or I'm strong enough to, to keep his uh, weight because all the weight was more or less on my dumb. So seven, he's 70 kilo plus backpack, more or less 90 kilos. And I, it was so much pain. I was screaming like hell. And, and I said, okay, but if I'm not able, I will just slide down in the hole and we are gone forever. So of course I choose for the first. And um, maybe if I would have had a, another Isaac, maybe I would have cut my dumb. Uh, because I, I was very quickly in understanding what are the options, what can I do? But I had only one Isaac. Um, so not possible. And I was screaming, screaming for minutes that he was understanding there is something wrong. So he managed it with a nice crew and um, a small rope to, uh, to put his weight in the ice crew. And so I was free. Uh, <laughs> it was completely crazy because it took us a, a lot of time that he came out and then I was completely Ah, oh, like all the pressure, all this fell off of me. I got immediately my menstruation, even if I had it two weeks before. So you also know how much you are involved with your whole body, with the hormones, with everything. And I was just, oh, okay, we are not safe, but now we try to be safe and go down to the base camp. So we went down and... Um, uh, we then decided to go home because I had no more feeling in my hand. Uh, uh, and yeah, we, we went home. And when I was home, I went to one guru. He's sometimes helping me with my body. And then he was there working on my body. And there was also a woman. I never saw this woman before. And she, she watched at me and said, you are a man. And I said, uh, okay, I knew that with this issue, I have a little bit a problem or I was never proud to be a woman, but I thought in the last years, I improved a bit. And she said, no, you're completely a man. So, okay, she was sitting still there. And after some minutes, she said, 
if you are not able to go into your feminine energy, I give you one more year to live. And I thought, oh, <laughs> okay. But I was not afraid, but I was just reflecting about this last expedition also when I came down and I really understood that I was behaving more as a man than Simone. So Simone was always like accepting the things, being in peace, being in harmony. And myself, I was always, no, we need to go, we need to do. And I really understood, oh my God, I really need to change. This is not, um, this is not woman-like. So I, I should try to um, love to be a woman. I should try to be proud to be a woman. And I should try to um, really come into this feminine energy. And then there was the lockdown and I worked a lot on myself uh, about this topic. And I think I improved a lot and I was so proud of me, you know, that it, it was of course um, hard. I cried a lot and uh, a big process of changing, but it was so beautiful, so, it was making me a, a lot richer. Fantastic. And then I went to K2 exactly with this goal. This was my first goal to listen to the intuition because this was also part of my, of my training, let's say. I wanted to know exactly, um, I wanted to listen to this inner voice. I wanted to know exactly where is my limit. I wanted to be strong in my being and not being influenced too much from the outside you you know of course how is it when everybody is going into this summit fever and then there are 30 days of good weather uh, 30 hours and they just want to rock the the summit you know and then you say oh my god even if i would have, even i if i would be kilian journey i would not go for it so um and then coming to K2, it was so beautiful because I had this moment then when everybody got crazy around me and I was just standing there like a tree with, a, with big roots, with strong roots. And I was so grateful that I was able to keep my energy, my peace and my intuition. Beautiful. Wow. If there are... If you would love to reach out to women who can relate to your story and give them a couple of hints how to start this journey that you have um, struggled and, and so successfully ventured, what, what would be your recommendations? What would be the first steps to take? Do you mean to go to the mounds or to... Your process of embracing okay. your feminine energy and powers. Oh, so of course I know it is hard because we are living in a world where is more requested this powerful, this more masculine energy. But I think the, the woman can reach the same thing in their own way of being. And we just need to accept that we are women, that we are different. And we just need to understand that this is nothing worse because in the mountaineering world, I saw a lot of women and they really 
um, see themselves as the woman, but as the weak woman. And that's why I never wanted to be a, from this species. I, I said, no, I'm not weak. I'm, I'm strong. I don't want to be a woman like them. Uh, because they said, no, I'm a woman, I, need, I carry less, or I'm a woman, and, you know, always these excuses. And for me, this was never existing, because my parents grew me up. We are three sisters, so we never hear this, you are a girl, you should not do this, or you should not do that. That's why I often recommend also to the parents that they should um, reinforce uh, the woman in their own way of living, in their own uh, st strength and energy, and not saying you are a woman, this is not for you, or you are a woman, you can't do this. So I think if in the childhood you hear something like this, then of course you feel always less than a man. Uh, this is maybe the first step of um, about yeah, how you should grow up a, a girl. And then when you are already grown up, I know it's a process, but um, I think you feel so much better being connected to yourself, um, knowing about your strength, knowing about what you can do. There are a lot of examples in the world, you know, a lot of women that did a lot of great things. And that's why I also try now to re-empower the, the woman. Now, for example, last year I was in Pakistan uh, teaching climbing to girls. And this was so amazing, really so amazing. And now in this summer, I would love to go to Africa to do something against infibulation and maybe to bring some Maasai girls to the top of Kilimanjaro. So I really saw my, or um, heard my a voice, uh, which was telling me, you need to, you need to try and need to give everything to empower the, the woman or the girls because um, they have a big potential and just sometimes, unfortunately, they don't know. You made a pact to go back to Pakistan and help these wonderful girls. Uh, I think it was in Ascoli, wasn't it? No, it was down in Shigar. In Shigar, yes. And uh, throughout some weeks, you were helping them, putting up uh, bolted routes and a climbing wall, etc. Uh, how was this received? Was it received with the mixed feelings in the beginning or were they a bit ambivalent about the concept? Uh, because the pictures I've seen on Instagram, they are just infatuated and they are completely engrossed with this uh, exercise and, and they, it seems like they completely loved it. How was this experience for these girls? Was it hard or, or, or was it embraced with uh, um, uh, appreciation? At the beginning, of course, it was a bit hard for them because they were really shy. Um, for me, this was a big uh, like a heart issue because 
JP Moore, Juan Pablo Moore from Chile, who, who died then at his summit push. Um, he asked me if I would like to do this with him, but with the, he said, just children. We, we spoke very few about this because I said, yeah, first we focus on the summit and then we, we try to organize this. So it happened like it happened. And after I went down to Skardu and I met his cousin and we immediately decided we need to go on with his legacy. So that's why for me, this was really, really important. And uh, due to I'm, <laughs> I have the vocation for the woman, I said, but I want to do it with the girls. And then I, I really um, went on with a lot of, uh, first I, I looked a lot around to whom I could speak, with whom I could organize and so on. So we found one girl, Naila from Shigar and JP's dream was to do it in Dasko. Uh, not Dasko, in, um, where are the, the minories, you know, in the, the, all these holes, in the, oh, um, exactly. on the on the way to Ascole, a little the, bit more further. Exactly, can't rem can't remember the exact village, but but yeah. it's on its way on Dasu, this treasure Dasu, street. Can you repeat that? Dasu. Dasu, exactly. Yeah, and then um, uh, I spoke with this girl, and she said, "Yeah, I will go to Dasu to speak to the to the people there, and we will see." So she went there. She was explaining everything, and then they said, "No, our girls will not climb." And I was so disappointed, so sad, so heartbroken. And then she said, "But look, um, I'm from Shiga. I can. I have a big family here, like a, a lot of parents. So I can go from door to door asking." the fathers if they allow to the daughters to climb and I said yeah this would be amazing just thank you very much and so she went from door to door and uh, then at the end we had a lot of girls and they were also really amazed about this thing and they were so happy um, and they were always asking when they are coming when they are coming and then she said, yeah, they will come soon and so on. So we went there. They were really shy. But then day by day, it was better. And they opened up a little bit towards us, even though if we were a mixed group of girls and boys. Uh, so um, then it was happening something really beautiful. We went after we, we did some routes in the rocks. We went walking there. And they said then, yeah. We want to climb K2. You know, they <laughs> somebody told about me about the story and so on. They said, Yeah, I want to climb K2. And I said, Okay, so tomorrow we will walk to the climbing spot. It's about 30 minutes, and then we will climb there. And the woman said, No, but 30 minutes, it's too much, it's too much because then they are already tired and then they can't climb anymore. But I said, yeah, but if they want to climb K2, they need to train, you know? So um, we walked along and the first day they wanted to have this lady with us because they were afraid about meeting men. They always wanted to make one um, secondary road where they found less men and so on. And they always were looking around and nearly hiding, you know. 
So I also needed to understand a little bit their culture. So the second day, same thing, but I moved a little bit faster with a small group of girls. And I said to the girls, so what should we do? Because they spoke very little English. Should we go fast or should we wait? And they said, no, no, we go, we go. So it was already a success for me. And uh, the third day, they wanted to go alone with me. And in these three days, I already understood that there is such a high potential. You know, there were some girls, they have a really big talent to climb. Some other girls, they, for example, if we climb in top rope, they said, pull, pull, or yeah, pull, pull. I said, no, no, you need to climb. This is not climbing if I pull you up. So just climb and they, no, but here down there is my father and I want to show him that I can do this. So it was so amazing. Every girl had a different goal, you know, a different view of climbing. And sometimes they were nearly fighting to who is the first because we had eight harnesses, eight helmets for four uh, couples and they were fighting who is climbing as first. So it was so amazing for me. And when we left, they were, some of them cried also like one girl of five years in that morning when we left, she was at home having breakfast or they had breakfast at home and uh, she didn't want to eat. Then her mother asked her, Sarah, why, did, why you don't want to eat? Because my group is leaving today. You know, we are her group. <laughs> they are leaving today. So I don't want to eat anything. And this was so beautiful and I felt part of, of their community. It was so nice. And they, they told me, but you need to promise that you will come back next year. And I said, yeah, I will promise you. So beautiful, beautiful. Fantastic. And, and this happened just because I would say because of this tragedy. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm sure it would not it would not have been the same thing because we would have had just few uh, time to organize. For sure, there were not the girls, and so um, I was never finding this part of me. So beautiful, I love it. Thank you for sharing. I can imagine, and I can also recall an episode. I was taking a class of, uh, I think there were second or third class in primary school back in Sweden. And after the climbing, it, it was their first impression and first experience with climbing. And it was, it, it was received with mixed emotions, trepidation and, and some, uh, also some fear and anxiety. But in the end, people were jubilant and, and, and was just out of their wits it was they were so happy and, and so proud of their achievements but there was one girl who approached me and and she summarized the day and she told me this is the happiest day in my life and i just wanted to cry yeah if climbing has this impact on people then i think that perhaps this is one of the most un misunderstood sports in the world because 
for me personally, I think that media, they, they, they digest and they put their teeth in the knitting gritty emotional things and where their sensational news comes from. And that is when people risk everything and loses everything. And I think that is very dishonest. And I think that is so uh, uh, biased, so to speak. I think that climbing has so much to give. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that these girls, they were pushing their comfort zone. But I'm also curious about you, you pushing your comfort zone. I know that you've been cross-country skiing, um, like schemo races where it's probably one of the most strenuous cardiovascular sports in the world. And I've done some ski mountaineer races and I think it's a frantically brutal sport, you know, topping max heart rates, skinning up the mountains, then the acidic muscles screams ferociously on the way down. And how do you handle functioning in this painful zone? What goes around in your head when you urge the body to continue instead of giving up? Yeah, I think the races are completely different than the mountains because in the mountains, of course, you can see it as kind of a race, but I I went completely away from this way of thinking because I think um, I also want to feel the nature, the energy. And if I just look on the watch, then I cannot really feel all this. So... Of course, at my beginning, I still was like, I want to be quickly. And the first experience I did in high altitude was with Simone and he said, yeah, I will teach you a bit. So we were, we did the tracking and I was in front of him and I was just like running and he said, no, 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 this is not working here. I'm your, your break. So go behind me, I will break you down. <laughs> And so I, I was learning how I need to behave here to, to uh, be healthy all the time. And of course, then you, you become kind of a feeling of yourself, how quick I can go, what about my headache and so on. And you step by step, you, yeah, you improve a bit or you go a little bit quicker. But yeah, I think it's, I completely changed my way of thinking and um, that's why maybe also this this quote who goes slowly goes far true or can reach the, the top and um, yeah it's beautiful how you evolve because uh, when I look back I was completely a different person I was training with the skis the pistons and on the piste and I was crying because I had so much pain and I was never listening to my body because I said I will show you that my head is much more powerful and hard than you are and on with this way of thinking I, I destroyed myself a lot and now I want to be more uh, loving I want to be more yeah to respect my body more I love it more and it's a, a better life like this because sometimes I believe that if you're in a if you're a sportive person 
you always want to have more and it's becoming nearly a stress of making sport and sometimes an addiction as well. And I am sure that I was addicted a bit. And, you know, we know that addiction is never something good. And um, because there are a lot of people and they think, okay, if I if I'm not training for one week now, I will lose everything. And yeah, I want to go away because I don't want to be the slave of my sick uh, thoughts, you know. I want to live happy and I want to enjoy, I want to respect myself, my pain, my, maybe sometimes I say, okay, today is, I think it's more important to do a good meditation than to do a training. And yeah, it's all about intuition, about being honest with yourself. And um, as they said, you can meditate or you can go through your training also in your thoughts and is more or less the same, the outcome. So what, what is this telling to us? That we are more than just the body who is working. We are, if we are smart, maybe we can train also with, your, with our imagination and not really killing the body so much like it was in my case. Yeah, the power of thought can move mountains. It's yeah. uh, incredible how our psyche can uh, uh, reinforce and, and, and also um, um, somehow emulate the external environment in our brain. Uh, I, I, I told myself that before I went to Everest in 2006, I was rehearsing the climb probably a hundred times in my mind i could see the rocks i could see the ridges i could feel the wind i could feel the snow and the ice and every step and the breath and the cold in my lungs i was trying to picture how it was so i was well prepared when i came to the mountain and already felt like hey i already summited now it's yeah. a bonus tour. <laughs> now I can just enjoy the ride. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to go back to 2013. And that was a project you called the Great Crossing, which was a ski mountaineering traverse in Pakistan with descent of two unclimbed peaks with no name. One was 6,345 meters and the other one was 6,489 meters. What I'd like to hear from your perspective is, is there a general rule of thumb about unclimbed peaks? Can you, in the wake of old explorers, name the peaks? I mean, Ronald Amundsen, who first traveled to the South Pole, he was naming the, the peaks that he saw. How do you name peaks? Did you name these peaks? Or, or did you consult locals trying to determine an appropriate name for these peaks? Now these peaks still have no name <laughs> because it was um, not really sure. We were studying a lot also with the locals, with the Pakistani, and we were not 100% sure, or maybe we were more sure about that these peaks are already in China, that the, they are in Pakistan. And that's why we said, okay, we should just shut up a bit <laughs> and don't speak too much. Um, 
but it was really interesting because uh, also there the the glacier ground was like so good, you know, just one flat white snowfield. And then we had a crevice every five meter and it was so hard um, because we needed to go with the sonde. I yeah, probe. To, yeah, with the probe. probe. Every step we needed to probe and it was so hard. And then we had one, like one time where I fell in the crevice and from the guy behind the, the pulka, the sledge fell into the crevice. So it was a big mess to, to put all ourselves in security again. And then I said, no, but please let, let's go back because I don't want to sleep on these bridges here. I, I was really afraid. Uh, also because when the the pulka of the other guy fell down, one big uh, crevice was opening like 50 meters, you know. Woo! So it was, oh my God. And then, um, yeah, it was different than I expected. It was really hard. We And I suffered the first time in my life real hunger. So at the, at the last days, we had no more food left. And we were, we had some nuts, some dried fruit, and I was with my father in the tent. And then I was so hungry. And in the night while sleeping, I wake up and I said, oh, I'm so hungry. I think I will steal some dry fruit because he will not notice it. So I, I really felt like a, an animal, you know, in, in the survival mode. And we were speaking the whole day just about food oh when we go home we will eat this and that and what should we cook today hmm we had left a little bit of ham and you know the hard part of the ham we never throw away and with this hard part we did a, a soup you know because we had nothing left so it i was so i was becoming a completely different view of food and also there i came home like maybe uh, nearly 10 kilos less. And I, I was so grateful to, that I was able to live this experience to really feel hunger and without having the possibility to go to the next shop and just buying something. And amazing, amazing. And then with my father, we, we were really a good team. You know, it was like, you don't need to talk too much. Everybody knows what he, she has to do and it was an amazing experience how, how was it apart from this uh, famish and, and surviving uh be the hunger uh and the craving how was it as i understand you were you were pretty much alone on this crossing expedition there weren't any other expeditions uh, around you how is it like to thread and, and and walk in virgin territory where po potentially no other people have ever ventured? I, I knew that there uh, was one expedition at least. So it was really beautiful because, you know, no human being, no animal. And one time I saw a butterfly and we, it was like a wonder for me. And then after 25 days on the glacier without seeing anybody, we have been for people and we just uh, walked towards Ascole down Biafo glacier 
And then we came to a point where it was no more possible to walk with the pulka, with the sledge. And we, we said, okay, now here we need to, to carry all on our back and bring somewhere out on the moraine. And exactly in this moment, there was appearing one human being on the horizon. And I thought, oh my God, is this a, a person? I thought this is a Fata Morgana, you know, <laughs> with hunger and um, without seeing anybody for 25 days. So at the beginning, really? Okay, let's wait a bit. But this person came closer and closer. Okay, he is real. And, you know, the first thing we did, it was like taking down the backpack and eating everything we had. <laughs> it was, and after I was, I felt so bad because then they came also with the donkeys and we, we went down on a, on a moraine for two more hours and then they cooked again and we just ate so much and I felt so bad, like I, I had diarrhea then and I felt just bad. And I said, I'm such an idiot, <laughs> but good. That's the, that, that's the back flip side of the coin when you are, when you are yeah. hungry, <laughs> that you indulge in, in, in ex excess eating, uh, I guess. I, I know the feeling uh, there is so much you want to eat at the same time. The only thing you can think of is these fruits and these uh, the, the, the foods uh, and it tastes so well after a long <laughs> period of time it the tastes is just unbelievable and you can't stop uh, i guess yeah that's crazy uh, I, I remember uh, back in 2012 when we abandoned our broad peak climb and uh, we went out together on the baltora glacier and the second day we camped in the open without tents in the proximity of the Camp Paju. And it was a night to behold, 5,000 stars shining so bright and, and so close that it almost felt like they're to, you could pluck them from the sky. Mm -hmm. What I'm curious about here is to hear your voice on, you spent so many nights in the open, in tents, and be freed from YouTube clickbait, traffic lights and Wi-Fi connections issues, et cetera, and parking tickets. When you are this separated, this included from the Western society and, and the, the modern world, how do you kill your time thinking uh, at these occasions? Do you have a sense of uh, um, uh, craving for, for, for internet, craving for, for, for uh, the connection with the Western world or, or can you reside and relax in that environment and just enjoy the silence and the tranquility? How, how do you react in that moment and what is occupying your mind? Yeah, it's really the second one. So I'm so grateful that I can be there and maybe this is one of the things why I'm so addicted to these mounts because you really come, um, you connect again with yourself really intensively. And you know, just sitting there on a stone watching some peaks or doing some meditation or um, having really good time with the people in the base camp, uh, playing cards, 
uh, knitting or whatever, reading. And yeah, it's really a world I prefer, I need to say, because the, the normal world, sometimes it's so hard for me. Um, that's why I often say also, I would, uh, I would be so happy if I would be alive 100 years ago because there all this let's say bullshit was not there and you know also on in the times of Mesner where there was no internet they just had this experience uh, this strong experience then they went home and then they went to talk about this climb and the, the, about this expedition and I would prefer this so much more than to have internet and to update and so on. I, I think I'm a little bit uh, ancient person, so I don't know. <laughs> I really enjoy these times. So the answer to the question, if you could travel in time, it would be 100 yeah. years back in time. Yeah, without because doubt. for me, the biggest heroes are the guys who went into war. Like the guys who walked back from Siberia to South Tyrol, you know, these are real um, adventurers and for me, heroes. And maybe we just want to have something similar. Of course, the war is the, the most terrible thing we have on, the, on earth, but um, yeah, I just, like to have this adventure to go out of my comfort zone to to know about my limits to know about my skills what i'm capable of what i'm able to resolve and all these things these are the questions and that's why i also say being nearly death is not the worst thing also when i had this fall on nanga parvat i thought i'm i'm gone but for me, this was such a beautiful moment because you feel so alive. And I discovered that for me, it's, it's not really um, if the good experience or the bad experience. For me, it matters the intensity of the experience. So um, it's a good experience or it's a bad experience. Every part can be very intensive. And this is why I'm living, you know, it's this, yeah, this, where you like are at your limit, where you experience also something bad, because in this situation, you know exactly what I'm capable of, how I, um, how I'm working in my brain, how I'm behaving if I go into panic or if I can be quiet and I know exactly what I have to do. And these are so very important things in the normal world, you would not really experience. And one day I also needed to help to be a man because he was injured and he was in the sleeping bag and we were waiting for the helicopter. And then he said, look, Tamara, I need to pee. So please help me. <laughs> and so like, these are all, so like different stories which you would never experience in your western in our western world i think that contrasts i think is the medicine for uh, our unhealthy lives where i think that 
everyone all the time is striving to be content, just being satisfied all the time, not feeling hunger, not feeling bored, yeah. not feeling tedious, not just being satisfied and like linear. And I think mm -hmm. that's, 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 um, for me, that is like prison. I need yeah. to feel the wind on my skin. I need to feel the attrition from, from the sand. I need to feel the heat from the sun and the cold in my toes and fingers to feel that I'm actually alive. I think mm -hmm. uh, life is best experienced being alive, a sense of being alive. Uh, and I think we are losing track of that more and more. Uh, that is why I really appreciate indigenous people and, and their connection to nature and how they trying to nurture their relationship with their nature, not distance themselves and alienate themselves from nature and seeing it as something that is uh, dangerous. Another very alien situation that you were encountering uh, was in Peak Pobeda, which lays in Siberian region, Yaku I, I can't pronounce it, Yakutia. Yes, mm -hmm. there we go. It, it has recorded lowest temperature in the Northern Hemisphere measuring 71.3 degrees Celsius below. Uh, you went with your climate partner, Simon Moro, uh, who is famous for his winter ascents on 8,000 meter peaks. You said that you were not sure if your body might could survive these cold conditions. Tell us about this cold experience. Yeah, I, I really started here with a big fear because I was not really sure if I can survive this. And that's why at the beginning, beginning I said to Simone, I will not come with you. But then I was really curious about this different world. And so we started. And after I was completely flashed about this different world, I was not expecting that something like this exists in in the world and you know they they are living completely different they they are really working to be alive and not uh, <laughs> and not like here we do you know uh, so for me it was a uh, changing my mind opening my mind and i i saw that there are different men you know the the men they can do everything they're mostly alone in their huts or in their tents out there with the reindeers and they're capable to repair everything to do everything and for me it was like wow but at the same time for them i was kind of a strange thing so they never talked to me they they would talk to the men i was um, maybe just a woman and I saw it also back then in Yakutia when they did uh, an interview to us so nobody asked me any anything they, they put us there in front of the camera but I was never asked anything so I understood that here the figure of woman is seen completely different but then when I went out every day to to cut the wood with a like <laughs> <laughs> then they said oh she's really strong and then I I gained their re respect I would say and yeah 
the, the experience was completely different because it was of course cold, but at the same time, it was not like 8,000 meter. We speak about, we speak of 3,000 meters. So you have a different oxy oxygen level in your blood and so on. You, it's completely different, another uh, cold. And that's why I needed to adjust my behavior for this mountain because I didn't want to go too fast because then I was sweating again. And so it was completely different. You, you walked fast, you know, like not on 8,000 meter peak. <laughs> and, but it was so cold, but we were still lucky because we had inversion. So uh, it was, I never want to know how cold it is, but it was for sure not minus, 50 i think mm. Mm. you've been to simone with many other expeditions and and you attempted the winter ascent of gashabrum one and gashabrum two in karakorum the expedition was called off after mora was injured in a fall that you talked about uh, i've climbed g1 and g2 in summer and for those who have not traveled through the monstrous icefall towering up from base camp up to camp one it can be treacherous and and nerve-wracking experience and i mean this accounts to risks and 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 an acceptable level of risk in economics and entrepreneurships they say without risk there cannot be no any reward i think that pretty much sums up everything in life but but how much are you willing to accept risk and i think this is probably a question that can answer be two in two parts uh, because it's before and after K2, I guess, for you. But, but, in, but how much risk are you, were you willing to accept prior K2 in order to succeed with your objectives? Um, I think I, I never thought about, about risk being at home. I thought about the mounts or the project and then I felt, okay, I want to do this. So I went there because you cannot predict the risk. I was not expecting this icefall because Simone told me when they did um, the first winter ascent on Gashabrum 2, they, um, they found completely something different. They In four days, they went through the icefall and we used 18 days and have not been even camp one. So um, that's why I think you always need to go there to see with your eyes and to feel with your stomach. What, what is this for you now? Um, and then, of course, I always try to, to do things well, concentrated, focus and so on. But um, then I really listen to my inner voice. Here is enough. This is my limit. And that's why I, I cannot say uh, I accept risk because this is completely a different way to see the things like I do. For example, um, we know there are a lot of crevices and um, but we were like two small kids who wanted to have adventure. Like we said, okay, one day uh, you can stay in front and one day it's my turn. And you know, we always wanted to be the first in the rope. Uh, so it's like exploring, adventuring, 
and for us was the, the best thing we could um, experience. Meanwhile, the two cameramen, one guy once went into the ice fall and he said, no, no, this is enough, no more. And the other guy said, no, no, this is too dangerous. I will not go even one step into this ice fall. So you understand for everybody risk or the way how to see this environment is completely different. And uh, yeah, for me, I cannot speak really about risk. Of course, if I see the fact that Daniele Nardi died under the mammary on an avalanche, I say, okay, this would be too risky for me because I was there, I saw coming down the, the avalanches and I would never go into this wall. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a very hard question to answer. I think it's very hard to dissect. And I love your approach and, and your, your ideas behind, behind how you grapple with risk. I, I can, from my experience, tell the story about 2006 on Everest north side. People were really eager in trying to summit very early in the season. And it was the winds were ferocious and it was too cold. And we as a team, we just accepted that we are not willing to take these risks now. It's too windy and it's too cold. And, and the way I saw it is that people who went up that early in the season, the reason they went up so early was because they wanted to come home earlier, not that they wanted to summit. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is one way of looking at risk to trying to um, weigh what is most important. Uh, is it to get to the summit? Well, in that case, I think you have defined this a successful expedition in an awkward and probably not safe manner. For me, a successful expedition is getting to the top and down with all your fingers and toes intact, friends with your friends, yet you're still friends with your friends and, and that you are hungry for new adventures to come. And I, for me, it's, it's been very helpful trying to be very precise with my description and definition of an expedition because that propels and incentivizes me to um, be true to my values and the set of risks that I'm willing to take in the mountains. But I'm curious, from your standpoint, how would you define a successful expedition? Is that getting to the top? Or, or is top just secondary? Is it being just having a great blast, an adventure? I'm, I'm curious. How would you, if you put your finger on that question, what is a successful mm -hmm. expedition? Yeah, some years ago, for sure, it was the summit. And to come back uh, healthy, alive, with all your fingers, all your toes. But one really... Uh, important part was the summit and now I, I feel it completely different because I put myself into winter and I know the chances are five to ten percent it is very cold everything need to be perfect to to take you to the summit and 
So it was more for me to escape from the normal season on the 8,000 meters because it's too much for me, too much fights, too much je uh, jealousy, all these things. And for me, this should not be in the mountains. And that, so I decided to escape from that into the winter, even though if I uh, don't really don't like the cold or I, I really don't love. So, um, but I, I accepted it um, also with this small percentage of success. And I need to say that in all these years, I learned so much, I think much more than if I would have climbed in the normal season, because, you know, there are always a lot of people, you always have kind of a backup, ah, somebody will help me if, if, I'm, if I'm in trouble. But here you're really on your own. And I will tell you, when I started in Nanga Parvat from KM4 towards the summit, I never felt so alone in my life because I knew and I saw my Simone and Alex and Ali just uh, maybe 20, 30 meters apart from me. But I felt no connection with them. I, I knew that if I break my leg, I'm done. I'm completely alone. I would, don't want to hope in their help. And that's why I always spoke with God. I just spoke 10 hours with God, please uh slow down the wind please do this please send me warmth and all these things like he was i call him the person who was the closest to me and yeah but i i learned so much i i'm so grateful for all this even i had also um bad moments and um moments where i was not sure if I can survive and these things. But at the end, as I told you, it's the intensity of the things. We are going to round off our wonderful conversation by pivoting back to where we started. And that was the second highest mountain in the world, K2, the Savage Mountain. And the woman that uh, you talked to, Last winter, you set out on the quest to scale K2 in the hostile winter conditions. I remember your earliest Instagram posts, your family, your familiar love for life in your eyes, this anticipation. And in my words, it looked like you were coming back home to a precious place that you hold in your heart. How was it like to come back with your friends, 2K2 in winter and with this um, uh, Nims Purja who had summited the world's 14, 8,000 meter peaks in record-breaking time. How was it like to meet all these people and come back to the mountain that you summited in 2014 without supplemental oxygen? Yeah, it was really strange because normally I never try a mountain two times. So I was here at home and I knew that I will be alone on this expedition because um, Alex was inviting Simone for Manaslu and also me, but I immediately understood that it's not the right thing to do for me. So I was sitting at home and I thought, okay, what is my winter plan? 
I was meditating every day and every day this K2 came up to me. So I was, I, I had the goosebumps. I was crying every day and I didn't understand what does all this mean? So what is the message behind this? And then one day I did one yoga lesson and this uh, teacher told us, okay, now this lesson we, we give as a gift to something important in our life. And again, this K2 came up and I was starting to cry. And in this moment, I knew I need to go there. And after this evening, I really focus on, I go, I need to prepare myself mentally. And then also I, I was contacting Alex um, Gavan and, you know, he immediately knew why I was calling him without saying anything. So this was also magic, so crazy. And I was, as I told you, I was so positive, so in love with all these plans. And then when I went there, it was kind of turning around. And uh, I, when I went to the first trekking camp and I saw all these people, I was saying, oh my holy shit, where I'm in here? Because, you know, all these people, um, a lot of commercial because if I want to do something I think for myself and I also are not informing myself who else will be there so I go there I, I know Alex is there and maybe I know also some other guys like Sergi and so on but my focus is on myself and not on who will be there and like this so I came there in this camp and I think that day uh, with porters and everything this evening 300 people in this camp and I thought oh my holy shit why I went here you know but okay now I need I decided I, I'm here and I need to deal with this and yeah it was of course two big tents with commercial clients I didn't know a lot of them and yeah, it was funny, uh, but I said to myself, you need to focus mainly on yourself. You need to see how do you feel and so on. So in the base camp, um, was nice also to, to meet Nims. I, I never met him before, so it was also interesting. I had some conversations with him. Um, really I thought oh my god this is a warrior uh, you know he talked uh, told me about his uh, trainings and so on I thought this, he's not from this planet and uh, yeah it was um, hard for me also because I was not feeling well with the food I always felt bad I had diarrhea I, I felt like sick and I was not able to never really to feel good. My acclimatization was really slowly and I didn't understand because it was the first time in my life that I felt like this. Then with Alex Kavan went not so good. Like we had completely a different way of living this experience because of course for me, I, I had experience in winter. I knew exactly where are my limits. Uh, what are my my rules you know because for example one rule never go into the darkness if it's not the summit push 
uh, and these kind of things. But I felt that maybe he saw it a little bit more easy, more relaxed, and maybe I saw it too too hard or but at the same time i knew this here is a question of death or a life death or life uh, and we need to really behave ourselves in a way that we should never allow ourselves to do um, silly mistakes to we need to cooperate well we need to know exactly what we need to do we need to be quickly in case of storm cold and so on that we have set the tent quickly and we are in the safe tent and all these things. So I was working a lot of all uh, about all this uh, setting in my mind because I knew and I, I know how hard it is. I, and then I knew, of course, also K2. I knew how hard it was already in the summer that we started from Camp 4 and then everybody was laughing to me because they said, you're completely crazy. You will never have enough good weather to make camp for. And I said, I will, because I ordered it in the heaven and it will come. You will see. So I was a little bit the, the only one who was um, having a really separate idea about this. Ali as well, I felt that he was completely different than normal. Like you also know, uh, saw him in, in Broad Peak and I met him there the first time. And then in the, in the next years, I met him again and again, then Nanga Parvat, and I thought I know how he is, but he was completely different. I felt that he has a lot of pressure from Pakistan, uh, a lot of pressure from social media, a lot of pressure also from the team, his team, because when NIMS went to the summit, his team said, no, this is not good. We are here one month before NIMS and now they went to the summit and we are still here without summit. So they're really, they were upset, like sad also. And, and so Ali was so um, nearly pushed by all this pressure and he always wanted to show that he's still young and strong like I never saw him doing before. And, and then also he said, I will, I want to go to the summit. If I will not go to the summit, I don't know what will happen. And, you know, all this now, after all this happened, you think about these words and um, yeah, you understand a lot of things. Um, for me, because I felt not good in the base camp, I said, I will examine me and my body really, really well to don't go over the limit. And I felt that this should be my rotation. And then the next time I will try the summit. But already on the way down, I, I hear then about the accident of Atanas. And I was again destroyed. I was sitting down and crying. And I asked again the goddess, what's going on here? Atanas for me was the most connected, the most spiritual guy in the base camp. And then um, I literally felt that the mountain or the, the root is falling apart. The, the pitons came out and 
it was all kind of showing to me, go out of here. I really felt this like a message from, from the goddess. And everybody was really uh, careful about uh, all the ropes and everything that they're safely going down. And so it took us a lot of time. And then down in the glacier, of course, you had no footprints and we lost together with uh, Noel. I lost the way we were just the two of us. We had no more light. And then we just, it was no moon and we were like blind people walking around for five hours in this glacier. And I thought, no, <laughs> and finally in two hours, I said, I will be in base camp. And then it took us five hours. And still I, I was positive and I also thought that JP can go to the top. I never saw such a strong and quick climber and he felt really like in his habitat, like it was made for him. And also when Sergi fell down, he ran down this, this wall like I, I never saw something like this. And so I told him, if somebody can do it, you can do it, I'm sure, because um, I, I saw you and um, I'm also sure that they went to the top. I'm completely sure. But um, I think they should have maybe also listened more to their inner voice. But once you are in the group and you go for the summit, I think it's sometimes too late. And if you're not strong enough to really sense then it's it's gonna be hard because you see it so close and then you say okay let's do it but the weather forecast was not the best for the afternoon and like now the 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 people who found them they they said okay they just froze into the rope while repelling and so it's obvious that they were completely exhausted and it was two, 300 meters below the summit. That's why I strongly believe that they have been on the top and it was just too late and they were too exhausted. And on the way down, it was just over with their power and energy. Hmm. How do you deal with handling the loss and grief from your friends in the mountains. Yeah, it was, I was crying so much when I went down uh, into the base camp and then Sajid came down who had a problem with the regulator of oxygen. Like I went to his tent and because I was the last who was leaving camp three, I missed him. Um, he came down, I think, two hours later than I started from Camp 3 going down. And, I, you know, the, the mountain was really telling me, go out of here because the clouds became bigger. And it was all kind of telling me, go down. So I just wanted to go down as quick as I could. And um, when I spoke with Sajid down in the base camp, he said, Didi, what do you think it's? No, no chance, right? Uh, and it was like <clears throat> killing my heart. It was um, so powerful. And at the same time, I was still hoping maybe 
they have a chance and I was meditating, I was sending them all my energy. And after this second day I was in the base camp, I said, okay, now I will put a, once more all my energy into their energy and maybe uh, we they just have no more battery, they cannot contact us. So maybe it's still a possibility. And tomorrow morning I want, I wish that JP is just opening the zip of my uh, tent and is saying, surprise, you know? And I was sleeping. I was able also to sleep a bit. And then the day after I woke up, I was listening what's going on out there. It's something, it happened something happy or somebody arrived, nothing. And so for me, this moment was really clear and I just started to cry. And from that moment, I, I cried a lot and um, I forgot about myself. You know, I never changed my clothes anymore because I was so focused on them. Then the military came with a helicopter and it was just a lot of contact with the families and Oh, it was so big and so much for me that I forgot about myself. I lost a lot of memory because after I tried to write down my diary about the, the last days and I was no more able to collect the information in which camp did we sleep. I, I forgot completely. So it took me really a lot of effort to remember all these things I wrote down. And then um, for me was very helpful to walk down again, the trekking to remember them going up, to remember the, the happy moments, the, the laughing, the, the happiness they had, you know. And after when I came home, of course, for me it was a really hard time. I, I felt completely lost. I was just crying and um, I thought every nearly every minute about them and of course then still a lot of contact with their families and it, it was always um, put again in your head also now last uh, September I went again to Spain I um, spent a lot of time with Miriam the wife of Sergi and for me was so beautiful, but at the same time, always reconnecting to this um, experience. And it was really emotional and hard. And I don't know exactly once again, why I needed to be there. Some people are telling me, like Miriam said to me, I'm sure Sergi sent us you to us to give us some strength and this also was so beautiful you know she said okay um, they took away from me Sergi but they gave you to me and this is something so big mm. and so huge that you cannot describe it with words and as well the family of JP I met them in the summer in in uh, Pakistan and, you know, they embraced me like part of their family. They called me sister. They called me 
they, they want me to come to Chile and they wanted to know everything about JP. And uh, they said, when I look at you, I completely see him in you. And I'm so grateful that you have been the person uh, who went with him these last days. And this is something so beautiful that uh, it's, yeah. Here is the bet, the, the tragedy, and here are so many beautiful moments and experiences. And yeah, there is no bad without good and no good without bad. We always need to live in this duality of life and we just can accept it and grow from it. And yeah. From the position that you are right now with all the insights and, and the love that has come to you and the love that you expressed, if you could travel back in time and meet your 13-year-old self, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Do the same thing again. Hmm. So I'm, I never ask myself, was it worth it? Um, I really, I'm happy about every single moment in my life. And um, now it's a bit hard because... I feel completely different. Um, people are still expecting that I want to go, that I go back. And sometimes this is a little bit pushing on me. And I try to meditate a lot that I keep my energy and so on. But sometimes it's a big challenge. Um, all these expectations. And um, yeah, I, I actually I want to find a way to... Uh, be strong enough to follow exactly what I feel and not to do anything because I think that somebody um, expect this from my side. If you would give some advice to young aspiring mountaineers, what would that be? Yeah, I would love for them that they start very young to focus also on mindset because it can help you a lot, not only to manage all the hard and difficult moments in the mountain, but also your entire life. And um, yeah, it's a big master of life, teacher of life, and you just know about all your your strength and your abilities and there is then nothing and nobody who really can take you away from yourself and um i think this is one of the most important things mm. and i would love that the in the school they teach instead of religion okay i am really religious but you learn uh, something there maybe some prayers in this older you really don't understand what they're talking about so i would love that they give something more that they teach them how to work on yourself how to go into a spiritual <laughs> into a spiritual way of uh, living and the spirituality i 
discovered is not something crazy or something so far away, but it's really also measured um, with the science. Like I'm following a lot Joe Dispenza and he's maybe the one who explains the best um, the, the spirituality with the science. And so nobody can say anymore that this is just bullshit. <laughs> That's why I really suggest everybody to, to become a strong unit because I was always against my body because I felt my body too weak. Um, and I was against my uh, being woman. So I was constantly in a war. And if you are becoming one strong thing, you need to accept yourself in all your parts. And then I think you, you stand there like really a tree with really strong roots and you can go towards everything or you can try to reach everything. No goal is too big and no dream is too, you know, dream is too big. Lovely. If you could relive one moment in your life, which moment would that be? I know it exactly. So it would be the moment in Camp 3 on K2 where I said kind of goodbye to, to JP. So for me, JP was a very special person and we already made plans for the future to do other things and so on also with Sergi. But you know, the things I'm mostly said in my life that in this particular moment, I didn't say him a really goodbye. So there was no hug and for me, this is something which I, I really would like to change because I was not expecting this at all. And yeah, it's never coming back. And maybe I, I can see him then up in the sky. But for now, I, this was maybe the hardest part to accept. And not even the fact that I tried to hold him back because one moment I was thinking about this, but I saw how, how focused he is, how determined. And I didn't want to be uh, the person who say, no, no, you should, should wait for me. Because he said, if after you still want to go to the top, I will go again with you because I will not leave you alone anyway. So, but he decided this for him and I didn't want to be the one who say, no, you should not go. It's like this or it's like that. Mm. And then the fact that they found him very uh, close to camp four, I thought maybe should I have gone up or, you know, but this is just if, 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 you know. So um, I needed also to free me for, uh, from all the responsibilities and all this way of thinking that I could have some, um, how is the word? That I could be responsible also in a way for this tragedy. And uh, a, a moment long, it was like this, but you live very bad. And so 
I said, no, this was his or their decision. And I just tried to focus on myself to do the best thing for me. And things went like this and I can't do anything. How do you feel right now at your place in time? I think maybe that this all needed to happen also to me, maybe to understand something because before I thought always more, always harder. Um, I knew that K2 could be the most, the biggest thing in my life that I would ever try. And maybe I needed, I needed some really big slap into my face to understand that it's time for something else maybe. I don't know exactly now because I still have not clear the, the, the future and the vision, but, and this is also something hard uh, for a person like me who always had really clear um, objectives, clear goals and dreams. So for now I'm living with my back pain. I'm just doing physio and um, I'm really a lot home but in some way also enjoyed a lot because I, I want to connect again with myself. Um, I don't want to hear the comments of the people. Um, it's again a way to find myself, to be good with myself, to be happy with myself. And I need to say that I'm, I'm really happy to, to be here now and um, to be exposed also in a situation like this where I don't know exactly where, what I am, what I'm going to do, because it's something new for me and I just can grow in, in this situation. Mm. So, yeah. Any last words you want to share with us? We talked a lot, so uh, yeah, maybe I wish that all the people, women, men, children, are um, approaching to this mindset, to this mindfulness, to this spiritual life, because I think if we all are able to love ourselves, to be satisfied, to be happy, um, to be also positive life for others, then we really can change the world and we don't need to face any more war and this kind of bullshit because um, we are all happy with ourselves and we don't need to show anything to anybody or our ego is then so... Uh, it it becomes something else, something where you maybe take care of somebody else. And when the world is reaching this, we are a happy place. But at the same time, as we said, black exists not <laughs> without white. So there will be always the good and the bad. But the good thing is that the, um, the energy you have inside you and the vibration you you give to the world, it's coming back to you. And so 
Um, it's always really special how you attract these positive vibrations again, the positive people, and um, it's like a natural selection. And this is so, so beautiful. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast, Tamara. Thank you earnestly yeah, for your for time. Because you are right. You did really great. Um, you, you had the, the right questions and I'm, I could talk even more because it was such a pleasure <laughs> for me to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's, uh, that's heartfelt. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Before we let you go and do your stuff, uh, if people want to find out more about you, where should they turn to? Yeah, or they can find me on social media. They can find, I have a homepage. And um, yeah, if I, if they want to know me better there, I, I'm also planning to go to Peru with some people in next year, 2023 in, in uh, August. So I'm really always happy to, to share my experience with people and I love to meet them really. And I, I love to meet them at the same height, you know, because some people, they want to stay always a bit higher because I'm better or I achieved more. But I think if you connect with the people at the same height, at the same level, you have really another uh another connection another um, how to say <laughs> exchange exchange exactly this was the word and um, you really can being positive you can give something to to other people and i i love this so much really it's the same thing if uh, if one of these girls in pakistan would go for an, a different future than the future of the normal Pakistani woman working at home and so on. For me, this would be a big success. And so it's also in like in life when you meet people, if you can open the mind or uh, enlarge the horizon of somebody is a big success for me all the time. And if I see this, this light in the eyes of the people, I love it so much when I do my presentations um this is the the biggest gift you can have in this world thank you for rounding up with those beautiful words thank you very much <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you Frederick. <laughs> <laughs>